1: All right, we're going to continue with Mark chapter 12. And this is an even longer passage. I'll read it on my own. You don't have to play along. But one reason that we're reading so much of this narrative in worship tonight is to try and combat the violence that has been done to some of these sayings of Jesus. You know how it is. Sometimes the church just kind of scissors the words of Jesus out of their context and then repeats them as if they are free-floating spiritual truths that can be applied to our lives without any reference to the historical or literary context in which he was said to have said them. So if you don't get anything else out of this tonight, get this. Jesus did not speak in slogans or one-liners or memes or bumper stickers. He had conversations in contexts. And what he said makes the sense it is supposed to make when we listen to him within the stories that the Gospels tell. So here we go with Mark 12. We're picking up right where we left off in chapter 11. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent an enslaved person to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another enslaved person to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. He sent another, that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, others they killed. Until he had one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent the son to them, saying, Oh, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, Oh, this is the heir. Come on, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, threw his body out of the vineyard. Well, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to somebody else. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. (laughs) Well, when they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd, so they left him and went away. And then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians, VRPs, very religious persons, to trap him in what he said. And they came and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are sincere, we know that you show deference to no one, you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. So is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius, let me see it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Look, whose head is this? Whose title? And they answered, "Mm, That's the emperor. Jesus said to them, All right, so give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's. Give to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Okay, so some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, they came to him, they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first married, and when he died, he left no children, and the second married her and died, leaving no children, and the third likewise. None of the seven left any children, and last of all, (laughs) that exhausted woman herself died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, (laughs) This this is the best rejoinder in all of scripture. Jesus said to them, is not this the reason you are wrong? That you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses and the story about the bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And as he taught, he said, beware of the scribes, the VRPs, who like to walk around in long robes, And to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A single preliminary sentence. Tradition has it that Peter, the enthusiastic disciple, one of Jesus' closest friends, was Mark's source for Mark's gospel. It was not just another Monday morning, it was Monday of the longest week of our lives. Our bones cracked as we got up off the floor of Martha and Mary's living room. The smell of Martha's coffee and Mary's scrambled eggs were enough to get us moving, get our blankets folded, and get our necessaries done. Those sisters sure could lay out a breakfast. Jesus, of course, had already been up for hours. He'd been out there praying and shivering somewhere until the sun came up enough to warm him up. He comes in just as we're filling our plates, and he's already in a hurry. Let's go, boys! He's shouting, clapping his hands hard. Yeah, he had been pretty wound up lately. Everything we said, okay, everything I said to calm him down seemed to just rile him up even more. So we kept quiet on that morning, even me. We just shoveled eggs into our mouths, looking at each other over the rims of our coffee cups. He walked out of the village on the city-bound road at the adrenalized pace of a person with a plan. We hustled to keep up, trotting like little kids whose mother's marching through the marketplace to get her money back for the rotten fruit hidden at the bottom of the basket. So when he stopped suddenly, quite short of the city limits, we bumped into the back ends of each other like the clowns we were. I'm hungry, he said. I think I'll have figs for breakfast, he said. I was tempted to remind him that we had just left the all-you-can-eat Bethany breakfast buffet, but it seemed ill-advised. And I thought about telling him that he wasn't going to find any figs on that tree at this latitude for, I don't know, another several months. But the way he was snarling while he rummaged around in its branches, well, listen, we'd seen Jesus hangry before. It was best to just let it run its course. So that's when I notice that he has stepped back from the tree, and he's just, he's just looking at it. His eyes are narrow, his jaw is set, his survey takes a full minute at least, and then he says, in a strangely normal voice, not like what he's shouting at a storm or a demon to shut the hell up, but just his regular, quiet Jesus voice, he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then he's walking, like nothing happened. So we're walking, too, trying to keep up and looking at each other like, what the actual, what just happened? We talked about this a lot in the remaining days of that hellish week, like whether the thing with the fig tree was a sign that we should have attended to, a signal that he really wasn't holding it together very well, a gauge of his volatility, and whether you know it was supposed to mean something that maybe we weren't catching on to If we were his best friends, his only friends, how could we be missing it, whatever it was? Anyway, we were headed into the city, and pretty soon we could tell that he was not taking us to just any part of Jerusalem, but to the high center of it, the temple itself. He had been in there. We had all been in there the evening before, just looking around. You know, it had been years since any of us Galileans had been there. It was a long, expensive trip. Most of us had to work. So here we are kind of gawking at the architecture, you know, our next crane so we can see all the way to the top of the cityscape. But he's not looking up. He's, he's doing what he always did. He's, he's people watching. People watching. He loved doing that. He's just standing in the middle of all the hustle and letting waves of humanity move around him while he paid attention to where they came from, where they were going. was so busy, so loud and chaotic in there, the jangle of money and the calls of the merchants and the escalations of haggling over exchange rates and complaints about the disgraceful price of pigeons these days, and all of that competing with the soundscape of the sung prayers and the priests calling loudly for God's apparently near deaf ear, the penitents beating their breasts, the VRPs outdoing one another with their erudite turns of phrase and long orations. We could smell the smoke of the sacrifices, those altar briskets that would soon be available for takeout. Out in the courtyard where we were, that smell was mingled with um, manure, shit and supplications, poop and prayers. The aroma of it, all of it, floating up to God's nostrils. Myself, I was just hoping that God's nose would have an easier time sorting it out than mine was. So on this Monday morning of the longest week of our lives, he makes a beeline for the temple again. He is a man with a plan. Although he's told us nothing of it, perhaps for the sake of our plausible deniability in days to come, he was, he was thoughtful like that. And this time, he spends no time looking around. He just walks right in. He puts his hands under the first table he comes to. He flexes those carpenter's forearms of his and just flips the whole thing over. Yeah, like like right onto the ground. Coins are flying. The guys whose table it was are shouting. He's not even there to shout at, though. He's moved on to another table. Same thing. Flip, bam. On his way to the next kiosk, he slips the latches on some goat pens, he opens the doors to a couple birdcages, A couple times he does that thing that magicians do, you know, where they pull the tablecloth out from under all the dishes. Only when he does it, all the dishes come with the cloth and they just crash on the ground, shattering into a million pieces. He scoops up a little child who's got no shoes on and puts him forcefully in his mother's arms, never breaking his stride. Table to table, booth to booth, pen to pen, he is wrecking the place. What were we doing? Oh, Honestly, I was, I was just frozen in place with my mouth kind of hanging open. I, I might have peed myself a little, but you don't have to put that in. We didn't make any move to stop him. It would have been um, fruitless to try. Eh, you see what I did there? You should definitely put that in. Fruitless. Yeah, so I just stood there like that until it got weirdly quiet, like no more noise. Even the prayers had stopped. The birds had all flown away. The goats were, I don't know, contentedly munching hay wherever they found a scattering. The merchants had stopped scrambling to scoop up their missing money. The VRPs who had come out to see were clearly not sure whose job description included this kind of damage control. It's like for a full minute, all we could hear was him just breathing hard, and that one little kid saying, Mama, what is it? What is it, Mama? And her shushing that little one because she, like everybody else, just wants to hear whatever's going to happen next. And after a good long time of tension, so thick you could have laid it on an altar and slit its neck for sacrifice, he goes, he goes, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations you have made my house a den of robbers we looked it up later it was a mashup of isaiah 56 and jeremiah 7 that's how he rolled pulling out the ancestors to you know show why he did what he did what you need to understand here is that when he said that When he quoted the prophets and said what a disappointing mess this whole shit show had become. When he as much as called the temple his house, his house, the crowd went wild with applause. Ah, whistling, shouting, fists in the air. They were fired up, man. They had come out that morning to atone for their sins and offer their prayers like always. And like always, they were ready to get fleeced by the religious mafioso that ran the marketplace. They were just resigned to it, you know, just another Monday morning. (laughs) But he had a way of piercing that kind of monotony, of turning ordinary days into the best or worst day of your entire life, depending on your point of view. For the peons whose workaday wages would go a little further if the temple markets were a little fairer, he had just sided squarely with them, publicly, loudly, and scored them a victory. Even if it was symbolic and short lived, which it turns out it definitely was, reforming a whole economy and a whole religion is a slog, as it turns out. It takes more time than he had as it came to pass. I think he probably thought he was going to leave that with us, you know, delegate that stuff. For the VRPs, in whose interest it most definitely was to keep close control over the economy of mercy, if you will, well, they were developing a collective migraine that wasn't going to go away anytime soon. He was a problem for them, a real problem, not only because he messed with the moneymakers and drew unwanted attention from Daddy Rome, but also because the people loved him. At least they loved him that day. I'll say more about that later. But with the crowds so squarely on his side, getting rid of him was going to be harder than they thought. So he was pretty spent at the end of all that, that Incident. I mean, y'all are going to have to figure out what to call that whole thing, right? The, the crowds would have listened for as long as he would have kept talking, but after a couple hours, Mary M. and John went and whispered in his ear, and they rubbed his back a little bit, and they coaxed him into coming on back to Bethany for a hot supper and a good night's rest. We all needed a break, to tell you the truth. So, next morning, Tuesday, he says he's going in again. We honestly cannot believe it. It feels lucky that he got out yesterday with no broken bones and his head still attached to his body. Remember John the Baptist, we say to him? Okay, I say to him. And he looks at us like we're the fools we are, and he just keeps tying his sandals. If you're coming, come on, he says, and he's off. And would you believe, on the way into the city, we see that figless fig tree again? this time it's all shriveled up. It's dead to its roots. One strong push from a scrawny kid it's going to go right over. And I say, hey, Jesus, take a look at that. And he says, yeah. He says, yeah, that's what faith will do for you. It makes you stronger than you thought you were. So you can do things you didn't know you could. I've been thinking about it. And I think that's one explanation for that whole out of season fig tree incident. I think on that Monday, he was about to try something that he'd never tried before. His whole program up to that day had been constructive, you know, putting bodies back together, putting families back together, putting food in people's bellies, bringing order to chaos, light to darkness, all that good stuff that people loved him for. But this next part this next part was going to call for something completely different from him, something he didn't have any experience with. He was feeling the need to tear some stuff down, break some shit up, smite the systems, poke and prod and provoke the powers. No more construction, no more building up, just the destruction of everything that did not align with God's intentions for this world and I don't know, maybe he just didn't know yet for sure if he could. So that poor fig tree, it's just wrong place, wrong time for our guy's trial run. No figs for me today? Well, how about no figs for anyone ever again? Zap. (laughs) And that's when he knows he can do this next part. He's ready for the fight. Not that a fig tree is a terribly formidable oppo- opponent. Weird flex, but okay. D- okay, don't say I said that. Don't, don't put that in. But it feels important to tell the tree story, you know? Because without it, we might be tempted to misremember him as the defensive player in the game he played that week. Like he's being chased, attacked, hunted down. But see, that's not, that's not how it went. He walked into that arena again and again, day after day, on offense, ready to offend, (laughs) to be offensive. What happened over the next several days is exactly the fight he wanted, the fight he started, the fight he picked. Not just that one Monday in the temple, oh no, but time and again in the days that followed. Oh, yeah, I mean Tuesday. (laughs) Tuesday, they brought their A-game and their all-star lineup, and we could see them strategizing their next move while he was fighting the current round. By what authority do you do these things, they asked, trying to catch him on a quick blasphemy charge. What about Rome's oppressive taxation, they asked. Oh, they thought for sure they could get him with that one because nobody liked paying Rome's taxes, but if he said not to do it, he could be arrested for treason as soon as he stepped off the temple grounds. They even trotted out that old tired chestnut of a resurrection puzzle. You know, the one about the sad widow and the seven dead husbands trying to satisfy them all in the afterlife. I mean, how's that supposed to work, Jesus? All their best brain teasers, all their best tricks. And he's swatting them back across the net like it's a beautiful day for badminton. And in between their serves, well, he had sinned one of his own asking them questions they couldn't answer, telling parables that embarrassed and infuriated them. He basically refuted the whole system of sacrificial transactions in one sentence, saying that forgiveness from God comes to those who forgive each other, that the only sacrifice God requires is that you be merciful too. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven that's the economy of mercy, he said, not this marketplace, not these money changers. Oh, the crowds were hollering. The VRPs had steam coming out of their ears. And. And listen, get this, at the, end, at the end of that particular day, this is still Tuesday, uh, at the end of that particular day, he magic markers a big red warning sign and tapes it to the backs of the VRPs. And he says, watch out for these guys to the crowd, which is eating it up like elephants and circus peanuts. Beware the VRPs who demand respect, but eat the poor for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check their teeth while they're performing their long public prayers. You'll find they should have flossed their fangs if they didn't want you to know. Christ Almighty. What was he thinking? You see what I'm saying, though? They thought they were chasing him. But the truth is, he had carried this fight directly to their doorstep. The fig tree was his warm-up. It was a test case. He needed to know he could go on the attack, take on these bigwigs, press his case for the reign of God in a whole new destructive way. At least that's one way to make sense of it. I, uh, I have another theory that I've been working on for a little while, if you want to hear it. I'm not entirely sure, but... My ideas tend to get better as I talk them out. That's probably why I talk so much. Anyway, here it is. Take it for what it's worth, okay? Don't forget, it was not the season for figs. But he was hungry for figs now. You see? It's a question of timing It's like when you want to make a sandwich with that bread you brought from the bakery a couple days ago, but when you get it out, it's already a little hairy on one side, and now you're miffed because you wanted a sandwich. It's not the bread's fault. It's just that you and the bread are out of sync. Honest to God, I think Jesus hoped for a good long while in his work that he and the religion of his youth, the religion of his life, hell, even the world he had made would get in sync. That all that he hungered and thirsted for would be met in the temple, in the Torah, in the priests and the prayers and the practice of it all, in the restoration of all that was good when God first imagined this world into being. I think he thought that maybe, just maybe, justice would roll down like mighty waters and make all the dry ground green again. That people who had been thrown away would be received would be like trees planted by the water. I think he hoped and hoped and hoped and worked and worked and worked for that. And then I think at some point he figured out that he was just out of sync in the wrong season that his ministry was never going to bear the kind of fruit that would feed the souls of all the hungry refugees he had met and so many more he had not. At least, not in his lifetime. And if not in his lifetime, then when? And more to the point, what to do with one so out of time, so out of sync, so right with God that he could only be wrong? with this world that God still, for whatever reason, loves. I think this is the truth, friend. Hear me well. No systems of oppression died in Jerusalem that week. By Friday night, you know, there were only four casualties, two thieves, that tree, and himself. See, that's the danger of being out of time, being ahead of your time, being a prophetic visionary on the long arc of the moral universe, the embodied logic of God's own mind. That was the danger of being Jesus. What he was hungry for, we weren't ready to give him. (laughs) He claimed that he had faith enough to move a mountain to crush us with the landscape itself if he had wanted and I I guess I believe him but in the end what got crushed wasn't us it was him because he was out of season maybe that's enough for today yeah we still got Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday to go before well There's no need to hurry. We'll get there.
0: We'll get there. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.